All right, open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis 33. This is the 49th sermon in the book of Genesis. Next week will be 50. Feels good to say that I haven't preached in two weeks. Lots of teaching, but no preaching. That doesn't happen very often. Um, so I got extra for you. Um, but let's catch up just briefly on where we're at in Genesis. I think, uh, for the most part, most of you are very familiar. Um, Jacob has just spent the night uh, wrestling with the Lord, literally wrestling with the Lord. Uh, God ended up breaking his hip, uh, and hopefully he broke his, his scheming and manipulating ways. Um, God, at that point, then changed his name from Jacob, Jacob meaning manipulator or supplanter or deceiver, and he changed it to Israel. Israel means one who strives with God. And so now here's Jacob. He's got this injured hip. He's walking with a limp, and he approaches this dreading, dreaded meeting with his brother Esau. And the question that we really have to ask ourselves as we open this text is, is Jacob going to live by his flesh? Is he going to go back to his supplanting and deceiving ways, or is he going to live by faith? The answer is yes. Okay, it's both. And, and the funny thing about this chapter, I don't know that I've ever seen a chapter like this where commentators are just divided on it. Pastors uh, are divided on this. Um, you'll notice that I, I titled this sermon Prog Progressive-ish Sanctification. Okay, you won't find that word in the dictionary. It's the one that I made up. Um, you go, well, what is that? What's progressive-ish sanctification? Well, the term sanctification means to be set apart or, or to be made holy. And so progressive sanctification, of course, is, is this idea of continual, consistent growth in our Christian life where we become more and more like Christ. That's really the idea of the Christian life is progressive sanctification. Progressive-ish sanctification is continually inconsistent growth. It's Jacob. It's many of us who are inconsistent. Uh, and maybe say inconsistent at best in Christian growth. And so some guys read today's text and, and, and they see Jacob's progressive sanctification. These, they see Jacob as this godly man who is modeling uh, what it looks like to live by faith and and modeling what it looks like to be reconciled with enemies. And then you see other people who read this text and conclude that Jacob is inconsistent at best. They say he isn't being sanctified at all. In fact, Jacob goes back to his selfish ways. Well, who's right? Yes, both of them are right. You see both. It's progressive-ish sanctification. You can't read this chapter and deny the, the positive changes in Jacob. You also can't read this chapter and deny that he's the same old schemer that he's always been. The difference is God's working on him. And he's changed in, in some ways, but he is very unchanged in others. So it's not what you would call progressive sanctification. It's just progressive-ish sanctification. He has moments of living by faith and moments by living by flesh. Do I need to say it? kind of like us. We're growing, and yet that old sin nature seems to be 
hiding in the shadows, just waiting for a chance to jump out, remind you, you ain't there yet. And as, as I read this chapter, it's really the beauty of Scripture. You know, we can relate so well to the heroes of our faith because the heroes of our faith aren't so heroic in their faith, except Jesus. Other than him, all of them have messed up. Now, we're in 33 today, but if you look at chapter 34, it's awful. I mean, just awful. Jacob's daughter uh, is raped, and his sons promise a peace treaty to the tribe of the man who, who raped her, and then they murder all the men after they complied with the peace treaty. And so then you get Jacob, who's, who's afraid that the people in the land are going to destroy him, and, and everything, he's even, everything he has, even though God promised him, you're going to have a great land and a great nation and great wealth. So why do I mention 34? Well, the mess that is chapter 34 is because of the decisions he made in 33. His doubt, his disobedience, and his compromise in 33 lands him in a huge mess that's chapter 34. All right, Genesis 33. I want to read the whole text one of the, the kids, one of the boys in our church uh, came to me and he said, Pastor Mike, Mike, you can read a long time. <laughs> He'll probably say that today. Genesis 33. Let's read our whole text and then we'll come back and pick it apart. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children, they bowed down, and afterward Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. And Jacob said, no, please, if now if I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one who sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the peace of the children until I come to my, to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, well, please then, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Badan Aram and camped before the city. 
He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Okay, so one of the big things that I don't know if you picked out here is remember when we left chapter 32, he had just wrestled with, with God and God said, your name is no longer Jacob. It's no longer deceiver, no longer supplanter, no longer manipulator. Your name is now Israel and he's not called Israel. Moses kept calling him Jacob, even though God changed his name to Israel. Now think about this. This is important because Abraham, when God changed Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, that name Abraham is used consistently through the rest of the scriptures. That's not true of Jacob. In fact, we're going to see Jacob's name used 45 times. Israel only used 23 times. Even after his name is is, is reaffirmed in chapter 35. Well, why is that? Well, we can only speculate, but some will say that this was because Jacob wasn't living up to his new position. He wasn't living up to the privilege as a, as a man who had prevailed with God. I agree with that. And that's what we'll see today. So if you're taking notes, uh, point number one is progressivish sanctification and reconciling with Esau. So it's progressive-ish. So here's Jacob. Remember, he's limping. He's just had this match, wrestling match with God. He looks up from there. Now, we've been two weeks, right? We're two weeks away from the wrestling match, and so we're kind of going, oh, yeah, that was a long time ago. Nope, he wakes up from that, and, and he sees Esau and 400 men coming towards him. Now, ideally, you wish kind of Jacob would have prayed, Lord, you, you crippled me. Lord, I'm helpless, and so I'm trusting you to intervene. Remember, God, you promised to bless me, and so all I have is you. But instead, the old Jacob takes over. Look at verse 1. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the, maid, and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. What does Joseph do? Rather than trusting the Lord, he divides the children and wives. And you notice the order he puts them in? The ones he likes least, they go up front. Where does he put his favorite wife? Favorite son, they go in the back. They have the best chance of escaping Esau's wrath. I mean, can you just imagine that, that, that conversation? Hey, Zilpah, take Gad and Asher, you guys go up front. Bilhah, take Dan and Naphtali, line up right behind them. Leah, okay, you go behind them with, with Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulon. Rachel, my love, you and Joseph, you go to the back. You go back there where it's safe. Rachel was the one he loved. Remember, he was duped into marrying Leah. Remember about those early chapters where she was unloved by her husband? Why do you think it said that? Because she was unloved by her husband. And so Jacob and Leah, they've now been married for 20 plus years. She's still the unloved one. What about the maids? Well, they were just given to him from jealous wives. I doubt he cared a whole lot about them, even though he probably cared about the, the, boy, the kids. But Rachel and Joseph, they get his best. 
Remember, it's Joseph. He's the one that gets the, the coat of many colors. Joseph was Jacob's favorite. In fact, it was, it was, it was Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph is the reason that his brothers attacked him. So you can see that this is the old Jacob. The old Jacob is trusting in his plans rather than the Lord's promises. And this is a glimpse into the bad Jacob, but then there's a good Jacob that, that follows along. Remember, this is progressive-ish sanctification. Look at verse 3. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So we can criticize all we want about how he puts his family into order by favorites, but who leads the way? The guy with the bad leg. The one who's limping. Jacob does. Now remember, again, it's been two weeks since we've been here, but the night before, he put his family at risk by sending them across the, the, the Jabbok. Remember, they, they were going towards Esau, and which way did he go? The opposite side. He went the safe way. He stayed behind everyone. But after wrestling with the Lord, he's crippled. So physically, he's in a worse state than he's ever been. And he's the one who hobbles out in front of his family. So again, you can see his, his, his faith mingled with faithlessness. And then he's bowing seven times. Like, what is that about? Again, the those who say, Jacob is this man of God, they say, oh, that's the number of completion. And, and in total humility, he's presenting himself before Esau. That, that could be true. I don't know. I, I just, I feel like it's a little bit less humble and more groveling. Because the bow of seven times like this is what you do before kings. Is this overboard? I don't know for sure. But look how Esau welcomes him in verse four. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Well, this is a, this is a change for Esau. Remember, two weeks ago, or three, probably four or five weeks ago now, Esau was the one that was out to kill him. And as you read this, it seems that Esau is the godly one. Esau is the authentic one. It really seems like Jacob is the phony. And yet at the same time, we have to remember who Esau is. About him, God said in Hebrews that he's, a, he's sexually immoral, that he's a godless man. I'm just saying, he looks good right now. A couple of weeks, we get to chapter 36. God dedicates a whole chapter to Esau and his descendants. In fact, in chapter 36, Moses says, Esau is Edom. Esau is Edom. He's from the land of Edom. He's in charge of Edom. It was Edom that had a burning anger against Israel. Who's Israel? Jacob. By the way, Edom no longer exists. They were all wiped out. But the land that is known to be, uh, that used to be known as Edom, you know where it is now? It's right just south of the, of the Dead Sea, and it, it kind of this, this circle. It, it's a little bit of Saudi Arabia, a lot of Jordan, and a little bit of Gaza. That was Edom. Amos 1, Amos 1 verse 11, look what it says. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because he pursued his brother with a sword while he stifled his compassion. And then it says, his anger also tore continually, and he maintained his fury forever. And so Esau 
became Edom. Jacob became Israel. And it's Edom's fury against Israel. And how long is it going to last? What's it say? Forever. Ultimately, this is a battle between Ishmael and Isaac, right? Even today, these boys are still fighting. It's not just about land, verse 5. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? And so he said, The children whom God has graciously, graciously given your servant. Again, good Jacob. This is good Jacob. Esau asked about the children. He makes sure God gets the credit uh, for giving them to him. Verse 6. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children. They bowed down. Afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, <clears throat> and they bowed down. Again, this is bad Jacob now, right? What are we seeing here? The maids and the kids, they follow Jacob's lead. They bow before Esau. Leah does the same. And then you see Jacob's favoritism highlighted again. All the wives had to go by themselves. Them and the kids. What did he do? He joined Rachel in presenting. It's progressive-ish sanctification. Verse 8. And he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Now, when we're talking gifts and, 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 and presents and things like that. Esau's not just talking about how many kids he has or how many kids are, are being given to him. The, the kids aren't being given to him. Esau has been given wave after wave of gifts from Jacob. And he's saying, why, why are you giving me all these animals? Like, I, I have plenty of animals. Why are you doing that? And, 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 and there's a key word here that really accentuates uh, Esau's authenticity in that he calls him Brother. Jacob calls Esau Lord. I, I, again, I appreciate Jacob's humility, but I think he's groveling a bit. Look at verse 10. Jacob said, no, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, <coughs> and because I have plenty Thus he urged him, and he did it. In verse 10, there's really a, an interesting statement there. He says, I see your face as one sees the face of God. Now, in 32, remember, the end of 32, he literally saw the face of God, right? And now he's in 33 and saying, I've seen the face. Your face is like the face of God. Like, what does that mean? There are two options for this, and, and honestly, I like both of them. I don't know if one is true and the other one's not, or maybe there's truth in both of them, but I'll give you both of them. And the first option in this is that Jacob knows that to see the face of God and live is an incredible gift of both grace and mercy. No person can be in the presence of God with open eyes and live. So think about this. Now, Jacob knows that Esau has every right to kill him. So to stand before him and live is an incredible gift of grace and mercy. So I can see that. You know, the reason Jacob stayed away from Esau for so long was because of Esau's fury. He knew Esau wanted to kill him. And I think we'd all agree Esau had a right to kill him. 
Now, the other side of this, which I also I really like, is that when you're at odds with your brother, then that brother represents God to you. If you're not right with your brother, you're not right with God. 1 John 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, you can't be right with God and at odds with your brother at the same time. Remember what Paul told the, the Roman church, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men? Is that what, what, what Jacob means when he says, I see your face as, as one sees the face of God? I hate to be up here and just say, I don't know, but I don't know. I think both options are really good. And I think another thing that's important is in, in these days, as a matter of custom, you don't accept gifts from enemies. So you can see why Jacob is insistent that Esau take the gift. If he accepts the gift, then he's not the enemy. And if he's not the enemy, then, oh, whew, I'm safe. But then you go, well, who's Jacob trusting? Like, what's Jacob trusting in? Is he trusting in the gift or is he trusting in God? He's trusting in the gift. And again, some commentators see this and they say, this is the model for reconciliation. And I would wholeheartedly disagree with that. No past hurts have been brought up. Right? How, do you, how do you reconcile if, if you don't deal with the past? At best, it's superficial. Jacob doesn't confess any wrongdoing that he committed against Esau. We see nothing of Jacob asking for forgiveness. I mean, it's like the husband. Sorry, husbands. Um, he wrongs his wife. And to make peace, he brings home flowers and chocolate. Okay, at best, that's a peace offering that'll open the door for peace talks. But if all you have is flowers and chocolate, and you don't mention anything specific about what you've done wrong, if you don't ask for forgiveness, then you haven't done with, dealt with the problem, and there is no reconciliation, even though you're not fighting. Well, Jacob isn't bringing chocolate and flowers. He's bringing livestock to a brother who already has livestock. And then he's insisting that he takes it. But he never, I, there's nothing in here that says that he deals with the problem of his sin. Instead, he wants to sweep it under the rug. He wants to give gifts instead of confessing sin. He wants to give chocolate and flowers instead of asking for forgiveness and opening the door for true reconciliation. Well, I'm glad none of us are like Jacob. Verse 12, then Esau said, let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. In other words, Jacob, let, let, let's just, you know what? Let's go together. Now, again, this is another opportunity, another instance where, where Jacob's flesh has the opportunity to rear its ugly head. And, and that's exactly what it does. Where did God tell Jacob to go? Canaan. Where would Jacob be following Esau to? Seir. So Jacob was right to refuse, but he was wrong in the way he refused. Look at the excuses he makes, verse 13. But he said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. That's an excuse. Has any, by the way, has anybody ever done this before? We'd love to go to your house tonight, but 
You know, my son woke up, he had a stuffy nose today. A little bit of truth in there. Not totally true. I mean, think about Jacob and his family. They've been on the run escaping Laban. So it's true they're tired, but to say one more day, if, they, if they're on the road one more day, everything's going to die. That's a lie. Jacob's like drama queen here. So what does he do? Look at verse 14. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Again, where did, Jacob, where did God tell Jacob to go? Canaan. Where does he plan to meet Esau? Seir. He's either lying to Esau because we don't ever see him going there, or he's disobeying God by going there. You know what he should have said? Esau, I appreciate the offer, but God commanded me to go to Canaan. Verse 15. Esau said, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Again, you have to appreciate Esau here. Esau has compassion on Jacob. He offers to bring him to his house. When he says, hey, listen, I'll just meet you there. We're all tired. I'll just meet you there. He says, hey, no problem. Let me take the load off a little bit. Some of the guys that are with me, some of these 400, we'll just, we'll just have them come with you. Uh-oh. So Jacob was right to refuse Esau's offers, but he refused the wrong way. He should have just been honest. He should have said, the God of our father told me to go to Canaan. This is the dilemma of being Jacob, isn't it? His default mode is to be Jacob. It's to be deceptive. It could very well be that he still doesn't trust his brother. It could be that, that he sees Esau as a secular man who has no concern for the things of God. But he does have, have, have some choices ahead of him if he's not going to see her. And he approaches these choices by making decisions based, again, both on his flesh and his faith. And so point number two, progressivist sanctification in deciding where to dwell. Like I said, it doesn't seem like Jacob ever went to Seir. So at least we can give him credit for that, right? Look at verse 17. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. Now, Sukkoth is, is, sounds like the same Hebrew word that you use for booths or tents. The Hebrew word is Sukkot. And so they name it Sukkoth. The problem is that Sukkoth was a, was a step backward, not just physically and geographically, but spiritually as well. Sukkoth is east of the Jordan River. And you go, well, so what? East of the Jordan means he's outside of Canaan. He's on the edge of Canaan, but he's not actually in Canaan. Where'd God tell him to go? Canaan. So, so going to Succoth is at best partial obedience. Partial obedience is what? Disobedience. Twice in chapter 31, God told Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. But instead of returning to that land, he returns to the edge of it. Moses even highlights it, that it's temporary, and that Jacob builds temporary shelters for his cattle. Look at verse 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. 
which is, in land, which is in the land of Canaan when he came from Padan Aram and camped before the city. He, brought the, he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, I know when we read a text like this, it, it takes about five minutes, I think, to read 1 through 20. Most commentators say this chapter covers about 8 to 10 years. So when you get to chapter 35, God specifically tells Jacob to go to Bethel. Now, it seems that that was God's original plan for him, return to Canaan, but specifically go to Bethel. But he doesn't do that, right? He doesn't go to Canaan or Bethel. He sets up camp in Succoth. And then he buys land in Shechem. As I was reading this, I'm like, why does he buy land in Shechem? The text doesn't give us motive, um, but I think it gives us a hint. Look at verse 18. Fourth word. Circle that word. Safely. Remember, Jacob's dad is still alive. Remember, Isaac thought he was going to die, and that's why he ended up giving Jacob the, the blessing early. But he's still alive right now. Jacob has always been about protecting number one. And now he's found a place that feels safe. For him to return to the southern part of Canaan and where his father was and where Esau was, in spite of Esau's warm greeting, I'm, I would doubt that he really still tr trusts him. And, and I would think that's probably because deceitful people like Jacob often think that others are being deceitful. That was Laban, right? I think Jacob cho chose uh, Shechem outside of Canaan because of fear. And the results of Shechem are going to be horrific. He's going to raise his family in Shechem. His family is going to be morally polluted in Shechem. Why did he move there? Because it was safe. He based his decision to go to Shechem because of fear. Listen, nothing wrong with fear unless you're fearing the wrong things. Rather than fearing God, he was fearing man. And this is the God who promised to protect him if he would just obey. But, but Jacob felt safer in partial obedience than to risk trusting the Lord and obeying him completely. And the one thing that I find really comforting is that Jacob erected an altar in Shechem. Once again, commentators are on both extremes of this. Some say Jacob is being, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Jacob is being hypocritical. He's saying, oh, he, has this, he built an altar, he has this outward show of religion, and, and he's claiming that Yahweh is his God, but, but he's still the same old guy. And for me, I'm going, let me just give him the benefit of the doubt, right? He built an altar. I mean, he's been to a lot of places and he hadn't built altars. He built an altar there. I don't know his motives. But he's a new man. He's Israel. And he's still the old man. He's still Jacob. He lives a life both of flesh and of faith. So how do we apply this? This is the fun part, really. Because there's so much that we can say. Number one, deal with besetting sins. Deal with besetting sins. 
All of us have, have unique areas of weakness. For Jacob, his area of weakness was deception and manipulation. For Abraham and for Isaac, you know what their weakness was? They were prone to lie under pressure. Moses, he would rely on his own strength. Solomon had a weakness for women. Uzziah wanted power. David wanted Bathsheba. These were besetting sins. That's the term the King James uses. New American Standard uses the term entangling sins. Look at Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. It traps us. And let us run with endurance that is set, the, the race that is set before us. So the King James uses besetting sins. In the New American Standard, it uses entangling sins. In counseling, we use the term life-dominating sins. Either way, don't ignore or cater to the sin that entangles you. You have to deal with it. So I'm reading through Proverbs in my quiet time. And in Proverbs 1, listen, I have read Proverbs so many times. I can't count the times, number of times I've read Proverbs. It's always crazy when you, you read something, you go, that wasn't there before. And so I'm reading Proverbs 1 this week, and it's speaking about how, you know, not going the way of sin or not going the way of the sinner. Hundreds of times I've read that, and I can't ever remember reading verse 18. Look what 118 says. They lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. You see what this is saying? Like you're hurting yourself. It's like you're just waiting there for an opportunity to ambush your own life. Stop ambushing your life. You're your own worst enemy. I mean, that, has anybody ever seen that before? It's new, isn't it? And you might go, well, yeah, but how do I stop? Like, how do I, how do I not do that? How do I stop being entangled by the sin? How do I run with endurance? Well, Hebrews 12, too. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do you stop? You've got to change your gaze. You've got to start fixing your eyes on Christ. Put your gaze on the one who endured the cross for you, the one who despised the shame for you. You are literally the joy set before him. We have to stop looking at what the world has to offer and what worldly pleasures await us. We have to take our gaze off of, of us and fix them on Christ. How do I do that? Hebrews 12, 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Listen, I, I don't know what your besetting sin is. It may be gossip. It may be lying. It may be losing your temper. It may be getting behind the wheel of a car. It may be lust. You, you don't become perfect when you get saved. But you also now have the ability so that sin doesn't control you. And there's going to be a lifelong, continual fight against your sin nature. But in Christ, we've been set free from our sins so that we no longer have to be slaves to our sin. I mean, what promises we have? We are dead to our sin 
because we've been crucified with Christ and he now lives in us. And then he gave us his spirit to, so that we not only can know and understand God's word, but we can actually obey it. Literally every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places have been given to every one of us who know him. We lack nothing in our ability to obey him. Nothing. Which brings us to point number two. Obey what you know. If you've been here any length of time, you're going, Mike, you've used this a million times. I know. Obey what you know. You know, you look at Jacob's life and you can't deny that God has sovereignly protected him. And at the same time, you can't deny that Jacob has failed to seek God's direction. Jacob's problem is that he falsely mistook God's protection for God's approval. He thought that just because it worked must mean that God endorsed it. Instead, I think God was being kind to him. Look at Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Have you ever thought that you're not actually getting away with sin, but God is being patient with you? And the reason he's being patient with you is he wants you to repent. I mean, would you rather he take you behind the barn and beat you for a while? I mean, would you rather he allow some kind of debilitating illness or financial disaster or allow something else to happen so that you finally repent? Or would you rather he be kind? If you obey what you know, you will grow. If you will simply obey what you know, then you will grow. Number three, consider the implications. Now, Shechem was probably a, a trading center. It was probably a place where caravans stopped and exchanged goods together. Probably a good place to, to live as far as having work and having advantage of a, a city. But the problem is, I doubt he even considered how Shechem would affect his children. He spent 10 years or so in Shechem. Shechem is where his kids would grow up. Shechem is where Dinah mingled with the wrong group and was raped. And then Shechem is the place where her brothers took brutal revenge. You really have to think about the implications of the decisions that you make on your children. Not just the big things, the little things. Jacob's settling in Shechem is what led to the tragedy of chapter 34. Jacob showing favoritism to Joseph is what built resentment in his other sons and they ended up selling him into slavery a few years later. What are the implications of the decisions we make on our kids or on others? See, we, we can talk about God all day long, but if we're not living it out, like, kids are perfect. I mean, are, are experts at spotting phonies. And I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm also not talking about, like, you, you determine if your kids are going to grow up good, bad. Like, they have their own sinful, wicked hearts that they got from their moms. And so, <laughs> no dads. Like, spiritually, no dads. Biblically, it's dads. But if, if you don't live it out, right, then you just give them a really good excuse to enjoy their sin nature. 
And, and the great thing is you don't have to be perfect because if you were perfect, you, you couldn't pass down perfection anyway because they're sinners, right? Number four, personalize your faith. And I, I skipped over chapter 20 purposely because I really wanted to get to it here. This is probably the most encouraging thing to me in this whole passage. Look what it says. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. Now we haven't heard that name before. You know what it means? The God of Israel. So he names the altar the God of Israel. Was he naming it after a nation? No. You know what he's saying? This is my God. Up until this point, Jacob referred to, to Yahweh as the God of my father, or he referred to Yahweh as the fear of Isaac, or he referred to Yahweh as the God of Abraham, and now the name of the altar is, this is my God. Yahweh is now my God. Remember Jacob's ladder, chapter 28. Remember the promise that Jacob made. Then Jacob made a vow, Genesis 28, 20. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. God did his part. He's been with him on the journey. He's given him food to eat. He's given him garments to wear. He's given him wives. He's given him children. And he brought him back to his father's land safely. And now he is El Elohe Israel. He is my God. And I would simply say, how about you? Have you come to that place where he is your God? Not your parents' God, not your spouse's God, not your neighbor's God, like your God. Have you come there yet? God has done his part. He's the one. He said the price for sin is death. And then he sent the second member of the Trinity down in flesh to die the death that we deserved. He did his part. What will you name your altar? He says, Yahweh, God, is my God. I hope you will do the same. Father, thank you for powerful passage of scripture where we can relate so well to this man named Jacob who seemed to do so well and then he seemed to not. Father, thank you for giving us this example so that we wouldn't have, that we would have hope. Father, thank you for the promises of Scripture that you give eternal life to all who believe in you, all who would trust you. You, you literally give us eternal life, life with you. And so I pray for those in there this morning who have never said, El Elohe Israel, the Lord is my God. I pray that they would recognize their sin, that they would repent of their sin, and that they would believe and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.